Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I got to tell you something, people. I uh, I have a, a new a new uh, sponsor. That's a great little sponsor, and it may help you people out. You should have got it for the three day weekend because my new company is called a Hangover, a Blowfish for Hangovers. And Blowfish for Hangovers, you can get it at uh, CVS, you can get it at Walgreens, or you can go to their website, which is fourhangovers.com, and use the promo code Cooper, my last name, and you get 20% off. And this stuff is really good. Uh, I know Joanne has used it, my girlfriend, and it's, uh, it's very effervescent. It's a morning after hangover remedy. And what's good about it is it, it's a formulation recognized by the FDA as effective in a treatment of hangovers. And it's not the herbal BS. This is, this is real medicine. It's pain reliever to get you feeling great, caffeine to get you back in the game. It's got refreshing lemon flavor. It's fast acting. So go check out Four Hangovers and get your blowfish for hangovers. Anyway, we have a wonderful show. Uh, my, my guest, she uh, does a little bit of everything. I got to tell you, she's, she's somewhat a renaissance woman with, between her music and her children's stuff and her glass company. And my guest is Lisa Lowe. How are you doing, Lisa? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. How, now, what? How did you spend your Labor Day weekend? Because you know, you you're, you have a family, and you seems like you're always busy. So, what do you do like, yeah. to relax? Did you relax this weekend? Well, I had to because I actually was under the weather. I had a low grade fever and terrible cough and cold all towards the end of last week and over the weekend. So I was trying to get over that. And then yesterday, when I was finally seeing a little bit of uh, health coming through, we went and checked out some mattresses. And we we did a few small errands, and we went out and did a few small errands and got some ice cream, and then I tried to rest some more because my kids had school this morning really early. So it wasn't a typical weekend of, of all the different activities we might do because, um, unfortunately, I was under the weather. That's that mattress shopping. You know, it's funny. We were just, it was my girlfriend's birthday this weekend, and she turned to Big 5 0. And uh, we, uh, we went to Santa Barbara, and we had a bed and breakfast, and it had a king size. And she's like, you know, we got to upgrade. And I said, oh, but mattress shopping is just a pain. So, it, you know, it's really interesting. Um, I, I um, make a lot of music for kids, and at a, at a big event that I did in Los Angeles, I was walking around looking at all the different booths at this big SoCal Moms event. And one of them had this beautiful, comfortable looking bed. It was called, it was a naturopedic bed. And um, we need to get a new mattress for my daughter and a couple of other things in the house. And I talked to the guy, and he's going to give me an awesome deal. But we, we had to go to the store to check out the mattresses. And it was very confusing. It's like, you know, you're checking out a firm bed with a soft top or a firm bed with a medium top or a medium bed with a soft top or a soft top with a di- like There's so many variables. And it's something you're going to live with for a really long time, especially these new beds. Um, you know, they, they used to talk about how you have to replace your bed after a certain amount of time because it gets moldy or dusty or whatever. But these new beds are made in a different way, especially the latex ones, and they can last forever. So it's, you know, it's it's a long decision, and you want, you know, it, it just gets, it's a little bit boring but a little bit exciting at the same time, thinking like, okay, well, what's this bed for? Well, the bed's for my daughter when she's six, but it's also going to be when she's 18, and it's also going to be for grandparents visiting. And then what's going to happen next? And you have to, like, look into the future all while you're trying to try out a bed and, it's, it's it is uh it is a little, very overwhelming I will say and then go home and, and compare it to what you have at home to say like well this is what we're comfortable on wait was that the same did that feel the same as the one that we were like you I don't it's like you a know, process it's unbelievable it used to be so easy like when I was little. everything is a process yeah. seriously <laughs> everything everything it's like you're getting ripped off when you go online to buy something you you always feel like you need a coupon or there's a problem it's true you know like it's... why can't you just go to a store and buy something. You can't. You think, oh my gosh, well, if I don't get a 20% off discount or a 30% <laughs> off discount or 30 off the 20 and the extra $5, then I'm being screwed. So it's, you know, it's it's wonderful, all these great discounts we get, but it's also, it can just freak you out. Now, I want to ask you about you, and I'm glad you're getting the mattress. That's cool because uh, it's important. Yeah. But um, now you, when did you start playing music? Well, as a kid, I think you played piano first or how did your whole music progression start? Yeah, music was always a really important part of my family. Um, my dad is a doctor, and my mom raised four kids, four of us, and music was always just a big part of our household. It was it was an expected part of our culture and values that you would take piano lessons and other lessons, and also the school. I went to an all-girls school in Dallas called Hockaday, the Hockaday School, and it was a school that had so much music education. We learned about opera in third grade and second grade. We learned... We'd have plays that we put on and, and musicals, and and in the same time, I had 
dance. Cl- I was a big dancer when I was growing up, but I had a lot of dance and um, took two piano lessons a week. That was just what we did. We took a private lesson and a group lesson for theory. And so I took piano. My older brother is a classical pianist, and he he really, I think, I think realizing that that wasn't my thing, seeing my brother do it so well, he was competing and everything. Um, I, I enjoyed piano, but I think, A, being a, sort of more of a private person, and piano is pretty loud when you're practicing in the middle of the house, um, and B, just I loved rock music and pop music and songs from the 70s and rock songs, bands like The Police. At a certain point, I had to switch to guitar. It just felt more social. It felt a little more private when I was in my room quietly playing acoustic guitar or electric guitar. Um, I, I did pretty immediately start performing live my own songs or playing with bands. But there's just something that felt a little bit less, I don't know, out in the open. And I really enjoyed it, even though I did start performing really early on, um, mostly at summer camp. Uh, and then that translated into my regular life uh, when I went back to school, playing at assemblies. And, you know, it was just it's just a way where people would gather around and play music and it was really fun. Or I got to share a new song and there was something amazing about connecting with other people that way. And it carried on all the way through college where from the minute I got to college, my freshman roommate and I started a band and um, we became very popular on campus, sold uh, our music to other students on campus, wanted to buy our cassette tapes and we performed both at our university, Brown University, and we started traveling to New York City to play or Los Angeles, Dallas, different places. And it just sort of was a natural a natural progression. What kind of songs were you writing at, at that age? Because it, it is a young age. And I always say, you know, we go through so many cycles in life and, and I always say when I was in college, you know, you're still I'm sort of a punk. I'm not going to, you know, you're 22, you know, you know, you're, you're doing right. it. And, but so what we, what were your songs? Where were you finding, where were you, you know, finding? The songs the- were really the seeds of what I do now today. Even one of the songs that was on the radio after college, a song called Do You Sleep? I wrote that while I was in college. Like I always wrote lyric centered words, somewhat mysterious or abstract because I, I, I loved, I loved sort of poetic, abstract, feeling music like David Bowie's early music where sometimes you didn't know exactly what he was talking about, the cure, um, the police. Sometimes the messages were more straightforward. Some of them were more about how you feel when you listen to the whole production of the thing. So from very early on, I I wrote songs like that. I remember when I was, when I really started sharing music with other people, I was, um, in like after I'd been doing it for a couple of years, I, I was at summer, acting school in London with a bunch of people from the East Coast. I was from Texas. And and I remember after the fact, my friend Jenny Weiner uh, sent me a letter and said, oh, my God, you have to hear this girl named Suzanne Vega. You sound just like her. And I had no idea who she was talking about. And I heard Suzanne Vega's first record, and I thought, oh, my God, I do. I've, even though I don't have that kind of New York accent, I, I had that quiet voice and complicated chords and different lyrics, and I thought, oh, my God, that's so weird. Um, I, I couldn't believe it. Also, because I, I, I felt a lot more influenced. I know deep inside my bones I'm influenced by the soft pop of the 70s and all those melodic songs by Bread and the Bee Gees and, you know, everything from disco, like Bad Girls to, to you know, Kenny Rogers or Olivia Newton-John. But but then after that, I was heavily influenced by, by um, Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix and, and then more alternative rock bands like The Cure and David Bowie and The Police and punk bands and alternative bands, but it's just in my bones. I don't know. I, I just, it's what I was doing back then. Really, if you listen to what I did back then, it's it's very much the seeds of what I was doing now as a singer songwriter, although more like a singer songwriter from a band than the James Taylor tradition. I, I knew the best of James Taylor, but I didn't, I didn't really know a lot of like Jackson Brown or Carol King, that kind of stuff. I didn't, I didn't know, other than what was on the radio, right? Um, I, I I wasn't sort of steeped in that singer songwriter tradition. It was more of the soft pop of the '70s and the rock bands that I was listening to. All the all the rock bands that I listened to, and I was a big music person. I, I was a DJ in high school, and I had a radio show, and I, I collected just hundreds and hundreds of records, and was always looking for the next big thing and my favorite classics and you know, all different kinds of music to share with people on the air. What was your radio show called? And I mean, and where did you find the music that you just... Um, well, it was at the boys' school. It was 88.5. It was on the FM dial. 
And um, you, I was the program director by the third year that I was there, but and they had a crate of records, a couple of crates of records we were supposed to choose from. Um, I think I took the radio station a lot more seriously than the, the teacher who was in charge of the radio station. <laughs> and I, I was one of the only girls over there um, who stuck around. But uh, I called mine everything you always wanted to listen to but didn't buy or something like that because I would play. Um, I usually completely strayed from what was in the in the radio station other than songs. Every once in a while I'd play a group of songs from a soundtrack that they had in there just so that I could. It's an old classic trick. You have to go run, use the restroom so you put on three in a row from some uh, soundtrack. Um, but I played everything. I, I played such a variety. I played local punk bands I pl- from Dallas. I played um, all, you know, deep tracks from The Cure and old some of my old favorites from The Beatles or a Led Zeppelin song, and then I'd play The Go-Go's or maybe play a Burt Bacharach song or a song from a musical or, or sound effects of a man falling down the stairs. It's kind of like Dr. Demento meets... Uh, you know, I, I talked a lot on the radio, just like I do when I play concerts today. But um, I did contests. I was friendly with local music stores in town and people who worked for record companies who were like the local reps. And I would get uh, advanced copies of new re- new releases, bands on IRS records, and stuff like that. So it really ran the gamut. But to me, it was like everything that you don't have. And I was sort of trying to share with other people who might not have that kind of uh, broad interest. You know, it's, it's funny, the, like the 80s was such a great time for music and I'm, I'm glad I was, you know, enjoying music at the time because we had so much stuff, as you said, you know, you had the, the 70s and the 60s and the classic oh, yeah. rock and you could, you could sit there and you could flip around your dials and you could always hear a song you liked. You'd be like, you know, once you had the five little buttons to switch from, you know, I mean, yeah, exactly. Philadelphia with WMMR and YSP. So you hit them too. And, you know, YSP is more classic oh, yeah. rock. And, and that's what you listen to. And it was great. And I always feel bad. I feel bad for the kids now. I look at me. I'm so old. The kids. Uh, yeah. I just I just think music was so much more developed. And we just had so many different options back then. Well, I, I actually feel the opposite. I feel like kids have so many. I feel like we had less portals to listen to music like in dallas we had one alternative radio station i know a lot of friends who lived on the east coast like in new york or los angeles people always heard whatever the new up up and coming thing was like i didn't even have mtv so i didn't get 120 minutes i would go to a friend's house to look at that but it, it it felt like you know i thought i was the only one who knew about the police now when i went to go see the police on tour i didn't realize wow they were like a mainstream band they, we, I thought they were kind of alternative. They were actually super mainstream, just like a lot of other bands I thought were very alternative. But it's because there was less, there were less places for us to find music. And, you, and if you did go to the handful of really mom-and-pop record stores, you could find something really interesting and different. Now I feel like it's a barrage of music constantly. I mean, my husband works in music at a TV station, and so he gets every everything because everybody wants to go on TV. So everything gets sent to the TV station and there's just so many bands out there. And now you don't have to, you know, ha- go to a studio and record yourself. You actually, you can make a decent recording on your computer. You know, I can make one right now on my cell phone. But it used to be a, a much more of a project to sit and write a song and record a song. You, you, you most likely, unless you had some tech head in your house who had a studio at your house, which is very unusual, you had to finish writing a song. You had to craft and write a song before you sat and recorded it. Now, you know, there were people who might have been really familiar with their keyboard and were able to program things, but you kind of had to have much larger commitment on the whole to make music uh, and record it than you do today. Now, sometimes you, people are lucky or they just make up ideas quickly and they're able to put things together really well, you know, without having to craft them in that same exact way. But there's just so much out there. Like, I don't even know exactly what's going on. There's always something new. I go on Spotify to find one thing, and there are more suggestions that I've never heard of than I can even count. You know, it's just, it's unbelievable. Right. No, no. Um, oh, go ahead. No, that's it. No, well, you're, with your career, okay, so you were you were playing coffee shops in, you were, were you still living in Boston? Or, I mean, up in that area? Because you went to Brown. But when did yeah, you start? Yeah, I was in Providence. I started playing concerts when I was in, High school um, down in Dallas. I play in Deep Ellum. I got to open for the New Bohemians, um, who had come out of Dallas, and I was just playing a lot then. And then in college, we were playing in Providence as well as going to Boston sometimes. Um, 
and and then on vacations going to Dallas, going to Los Angeles, and playing, yeah, sort of the coffee shops and also clubs. You know, right after college, we were already playing at the Bitter End with our band or CBGBs, um, you know, just real places. We were playing, and then we would drive to Philly and play at the North Star. Um, my friend Liz and I went our separate ways at a certain point, and she started her band Ida with her husband, as well as doing kids' music um, under the name of Elizabeth Mitchell, which is her name. Um, but we, I, yeah, we, I was just playing everything from coffee shops to rock clubs, because that, just like I said, with my background, it was those. I, those were the different types of, I, you know, I could play just with a guitar or with another instrument and me playing guitar, and we'd do a little coffee shop type of thing. We didn't, we didn't really play a lot of actual coffee shops. It was more like the coffee shop set up on stage, just acoustic shows, and um, or, or play, you know, full-on band shows, depending on what the opportunity was. What was it like for you? To, you know, for your first time, you must have played C, when you played CBGB, you being a big music fan, it must have been just a pretty awesome feeling because that place is legendary. Oh, yeah, it was amazing. It was... I think just living in New York City and playing in, in these places, there was just a real energy about it. Um, you know, so something like CBGB's is, is very, you know, it's a classic, um, iconic place, and it makes you feel like, wow, I'm, I'm making it. Like, this is happening. I'm actually taking the steps towards doing this. Like, I'm, I'm actually in New York City playing at a place that you play when you're on the way to making it. And then on top of that, there was just a general energy. Like, I played at this place called The Wetlands a lot, and... Um, other bands who were playing there now in retrospect it's funny i'd play shows with spin doctors and blues traveler and joan osborne and jeff buckley we, there was another club called shanae that jeff buckley would play at a lot or um just a lot of the people who became professional musicians we were all playing in these different places and overlapping in some areas there's a place called the lone star roadhouse a lot of us played um it just uh we were all overlapping and, and all becoming professionals you know developing our audiences and making music. She must have been a great thing. So now, now then your, your big break came with Stay, right? Yes, that was around the same time. It was 1994. I recorded the song in 1993, graduated college in 90. Um, my singing partner, Liz, and I went our separate ways, and I started doing some acoustic recordings so I could get familiar with myself singing my songs instead of somebody else singing my songs or songs we had written. Um, and within a couple of years, I, I was doing some demo deals for record companies, including the song Stay, which I had written. And um, Ethan Hawke was one of my friends and fans and friends, and he asked me for a copy of that song to give to Benton Stiller. And that was probably at the beginning of 93. Um, so it was cool. It was pretty pretty quick, actually. It seemed like it was taking forever, but it was, it was actually kind of quick. And Ethan asked Ben to, to listen to it, and he really liked it and put it on the soundtrack for Reality Bites. And um, and very quickly, by 1994, the song was on the radio. A radio station in Houston decided to start playing it um, as a single off the soundtrack. And then everything changed, you know? It was amazing. It was like everything I had been doing, making demos, doing recordings, having my band, doing some touring, it all amped up really quickly. Um, and, and so it was amazing to be you know, in the middle of a huge success like that and also continuing to make a record and write songs and, and on all that other stuff. It was, a, it was a lot, but it was really exciting. It was something I felt like I was interested in doing since I was a kid. I don't know if I would have admitted it until probably freshman year in college, but when I look back, it was kind of what my life was pointing towards. Now, Ever since I was a kid. See, but that's perfect. But you know, I always say, and I get this a lot from my guests, because you know, I have a lot of actors and musicians, and, and everyone, yeah. when they get that break, like yours was, you know, Ethan had like your music, but what, yeah. what I try to tell people is, it's not like, oh, they just got the break and they didn't have talent. You know, you, you were getting your chops, you were playing, you were out there doing it, and that's what yeah. I always tell people. It's like, you, you get that break, but when you get that break, you better be ready, else, you know, it's people are going to tell and that's what seems you delivered I mean you had recorded the song you were playing gigs so it's not like yeah. oh who's this overnight success and they say well exactly. you playing since you were a kid I mean you are playing piano as a little kid you've been playing yeah I've been writing college. since I was six years old it was you know it was something I've been doing forever uh, but yeah it was it was frustrating too at the beginning too you know I was so um, lucky that Ethan directed the video for my song Stay and one of the artistic decisions was that I was in a room telling the story to one person which was the camera but you know, it was one take video, and 
in doing that, I, I ended up not playing my guitar, not having my band and my song with me. You know, it looked like I was a pop singer walking around a, a loft, which I think made a strong artistic statement, and people really connected to that, and they still do. You know, they still like to talk about the video and act it out for me when I see people in airports. But but it also meant I was constantly having to defend myself, saying, no, I've been doing this forever. <laughs> I've been playing music forever. I've been recording since I was in high school. You know, like... People couldn't believe that, you know, they, they would call me a waif because I'm a small person. And I had a short dress and big shoes because that's how I roll with my feminism. Um, you know, I, and, and it was really strange to be put in a position where I was defending my artistic, you know, my my abilities and my, um, my craft and all that stuff. I was like, that's so weird. Like, I'm always the one who's the musician and the artist and the, you know, sit in a room and make a song. And it's so weird that people... I'm having to explain that to people um, because I'm on the radio all of a sudden. You know, like, all of a sudden it's 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 almost like a negative thing being on the radio. But for me it was also, I, I appreciated it still at the time as being a positive thing, even though I was put in a position to have to defend myself and say, no, really, I'm, really am a musician. I've been doing this forever, you know. What, what's it like when when it starts breaking, though? I mean, as in, in your psyche, you know, you're sitting there and all of a sudden – as you said, you've always been a musician, but now your song's getting played all over the place. I mean, how does someone handle that? And then do you sit there and go, like, if you're driving and then your song comes on, would you turn it off or would you listen to it? And would you critique it saying, I could have done it this way? I always wonder yeah. how people do that. Like, when they, after they hear it, they go, the final product, they go, you know what? After, like, hearing it 67,000 times, right. I, I, I did yeah. it wrong. I mean, I can I can imagine that, like, you know, 10 years later, I listen to things, and I'm like, ah, yeah. But at the time, I'm, I'm a little uh, quality-controlled freak as well. And at the time, the people that I surrounded myself with, my band that I worked with, my producer who I worked with closely, Juan Patino, we were both, you know... It, it's funny, I remember hearing somebody say that... Um, uh, what's his name from the Eagles? Um, my brain, come on. Don Henley? Don... Henley, uh, you know, in the studio, he if he could, he would have put each piece of carpet down individually, each strand in the in the shag carpet. He would put down each strand individually, and I feel a little bit that way sometimes, especially when I was starting off. Um, I'm such a quali- quality control freak. Everything was just so thought out. It, it was such a combination of sort of what came out, which is the inspiration part, and then the craft of just being in the studio and trying to get everything exactly right. The music, the writing, the everything and then on top of that then you've got the artwork and I'm like obsessed if we talked about the cover of my album Tales is kind of a pea green color oh my god the record company thought I was crazy I was like obsessed (laughs) to get the right color and then to make sure the CD was the same color as the packaging it was just just a whole thing so it it was I, I think when the song Stay became popular and all of a sudden my career just quickly started shooting through the roof in a more national way it was it was really exciting to be in the middle of it. Um, I think if I had been by myself sitting in a car and heard the song come on, I would listen to it. But but I think what I was lucky was that I had a lot of really old friends and family and collaborators around me to share that experience with. Because I don't think I would have enjoyed it as much or taken it in as much if I didn't have those people around me to say, hey, look, this is exciting. This is happening. Like, this is actually happening. To me, I was like being in the middle of a rocket ship blast. It was just going and I was like well I'm driving the rocket ship like let's go let's make more music let's record there was always more work to be done and that's, and, and I was in the middle of it and that's what happens when you are a creative person you're you're doing the thing you're not on the outside just laying back and enjoying the you know what's happening you're actually still in it having to make sure that rocket can still fly you know and it's got to <clears> be good for you just for the fact that you know the record went gold so now no yeah. you, you didn't have when did you finally get a record deal i mean once the song i got a record deal while the song was number one um in august of 94 which i know just because we just celebrated it going to number one but it was while the while the song was on the charts that's when i signed the deal it was a great it was a great way it was a great time to sign a record deal oh, yeah. it was frustrating because we didn't get the record out for another year because of our attention to detail on top of um you know actually promoting the song and, and being in the middle of the success of that song and then trying to make a, a record at the same time and also i'm a business person and part of being a musician is you work with a lot of people and in that you really need to make sure your your record deals are good and your publishing deals are good and your um 
your legal work between you and your musicians that you work with is right and the producers you work with and the language is right and that takes time especially when you're trying to make a record and write songs and record songs at the same time it's really important to have your ducks in a row on the business side you know we read stories time and time again about people who weren't clear about their business arrangements and it just you know bites them in the ass later um so that was you know there's a lot going on and it took me another year to get a record out now now when how do you find out your records like number one did someone call you i always wonder like is there someone calls you and hey lisa it's number one. How do you find out officially? This, is there a call made to you or what happens? Yeah, you know, I don't know how anybody else gets it, but I was so fortunate that when my song was on the Reality Bite soundtrack, there was um, the, the pop radio promoter, the head pop radio promoter, his name is Skip Bishop. He was over at RCA Records, and I was so lucky to have him in my life. You know, now looking back, I don't think everybody has somebody like that. I was really lucky, lucky to have this guy who was a big champion of us, and he was very energetic and very, um, he had so much heart and so much energy and so fun and kind and funny, and he would call us every week and say, Lisa, and he has a southern accent, he's like, your song's going up the charts, it's on, you know, it's number, I forgot the different numbers that it hit, but so he would always call me, it's like a couple days before, or the night before, um, he already knows the chart position, he's like, all right. Your song, you know, he, and he would tell me, he'd say, your, your song, this is what it's doing. This is what it's doing this week. This is what it's doing next week. And he, and this guy, Skip Bishop, he's still, he's still one of my dear friends. Like, I still, um, I just did a, a project with him recently um, where we were both judges at a, in a pilot for a songwriting TV show. But he's so, he was so great because he made the experience exciting. And, and he, again, like, these, these experiences can go by so quickly without you even knowing um but he he recognized how special it was, and he's still a big part of my life. And 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 so I did get that call. And then we would go and get the the Billboard magazine and look at it the next day or, or a couple of days later when it came out. But I did have a guy calling me actually, telling me what was happening, and, it, and we would wait for his call. You know, that must have been such an amazing. You know, you think about that's such an amazing feeling that honestly, you know, you have to sit there and feel very lucky for the fact that there's not a lot of people who get to feel that feeling. And and that's what's, oh, yeah. that's what's awesome. I and mean, when you look, and it's number when you, I, mean, I remember the Billboard magazine. We used to look at that, and you always looked at the yeah. chart. You go into the record store, and you'd see it, and you go, "Oh, this, you know, this album." And uh, so, that must have been an amazing feeling. Now, what, how how did it feel when you get nominated for a Grammy? I mean, that must have been. Oh, that was really exciting too. Yeah, I mean, because the Grammys when I was a kid, that was something we would wait for all year for it to be on TV, and it was such a big deal. And you know, I remember seeing like Fleetwood Mac get up with their afros and feathers in their hair, or Cher, or you know, whoever my favorite singers and, and Stevie Wonder, and just to, to to be a part of something that was so iconic and meant a lot. And I think back then it even meant more because there were less award shows. Now there's an award show on every every week, but it was a real stamp of approval. I mean, I know in general for awards, there's all kinds of things behind the scenes and. You know, it really, it, with real perspective, it, it's it it is very special, and I think people in the world still see it as a, like I said, a seal of approval. If you see something that's Grammy nominated, you might be more likely to buy it because you think it maybe it's better than something else. That being said, I know lots and lots of music that has never been, you know, acknowledged by the Grammy Association. But then that being said, I still do think it means something. <laughs> but it was it was really exciting. Again, it was like playing at CBGBs. It was one of those things that was that that seemed to be a stamp and a recognition of the fact that wow, I am in the music industry and I'm doing this and this is happening. And and you know, existentialism. I exist. I'm here. You know. No, no. And it was great for my parents to see that too because they, <clears throat> as nice Jewish parents should be, they were concerned about my job and my career. <clears throat> You know. So, so after you, you know, you hit your songs number one. You're making the record. Did you feel pressure when you went into the studio to make that record? And also because, as you said, you're somewhat a perfectionist. That must have just some. That must have been hard because you know you already have this song that's a hit. People know you. They want to hear more of you. You right. want to make sure the product's good. And yeah. you're still at a young age. I mean, how does how do you handle that success and sit there and put out a product that? You know, you probably, as you said, the colors for the album. You knew you're going to go over the business decisions. How do you? How did you yeah. keep all the energy? I just going? did it. You know, it was just it was the same thing I had been doing for years. I'd been making records since 
I was in high school and I did recordings and in college we had you know really detailed artwork and things like that so it was just I had been I felt like I had been doing it for so long that it was just a continuation of that you know um, we did have a record company involved but I but I had a lot of music industry friends who I had gotten kind of advice from and and the advice was in line with what my deep feelings were which is I have to make a record that I like we need to make this record um, you know let's, I, I wanted to make it as soon as possible but I wanted to make it right um, I, I I don't know it's, it was just doing the same thing we'd always done but it was just with more eyes on it you know and a record company on it and 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 at the time I think especially before all the social media, the record company was able to focus and help us a little bit more with the tasks of figuring out what we needed to do to get the artwork done or, you know, get things done on time to come out at a certain point and to be a team to figure out which music videos are we going to make and that, that kind of thing. But in the meantime, I would, you know, we would just bunker down. We'd be in our bunker at the recording studio just making the record. Now, with the videos, did you have creative input on that, too, or was it mostly you having oh, yeah. the director? No, I'm, like, obsessed with everything. So, um, you know, with the Stay video, which had come out a year before, Ethan had had an idea, and, and it was a great idea, and we brought it to the record company, and they agreed. I think they probably agreed because he was a movie star, but it was actually the, the real, the great part about that ended up being actually his idea, even more than him being a movie star, you know? That was a good part of the story as well, but... Then after that, yeah, I, you know, I'd, I'd have ideas, and then we'd look for big um, video directors to work with and talk about our ideas. For my song called Do You Sleep, my sister had an idea, so we involved her in the concept as well, coming up with the concept and then talking with the video director. And Then I worked with a wardrobe person, and we um, had dresses made for the video that, that we worked on together um, conceptually. And, and then I, I, mean, I, I literally would be sitting in the editing suite with the editors at towards the end I I learned I think with mixing records that the best way to do that part is to let people mix the record go out of the studio come back in listen make about a thousand notes then let them work on the notes and then come back in again and listen to sort of clear my palette um, creatively and it's the same with editing um, I know when we made the video for the song do you sleep there was a little bit of the issue because Sophie Mueller who was an amazing director who had worked with Courtney Love and she works with Sade a lot and she does these just beautiful, sparkling, uh, mysterious videos. It turned out, I didn't realize this until we were editing, she didn't like to edit on um, on drum beats. She didn't like to edit on the beat. And uh, my producer, ex-boyfriend, and I really liked videos edited on the beat that felt like they were in a rhythm. Right. And so that was sort of an issue, and I thought, oh, God. I mean, in retrospect, now if I were to make a video with her, I would let that go because I would realize, oh, that's her part of her contribution. That's sort of how she feels the music, and she always makes beautiful videos. I need to let go of that, you know, and let her do that. Um, but, but that's sort of part of growing up is realizing – like now when I make records, we make them more quickly. We're able to make really um, quality, c- creative quality decisions much more quickly. And even with musicians, I was loyal to a fault with always wanting to use my own band. I don't want to use other people. I don't want to have studio musicians coming in. But I found out along the way that sometimes it is a good idea to have other musicians who might specialize in other types of style or... I love you. Sorry, I'm saying goodbye to my son. Bye, Bubba. Um, you know, sometimes it is important to bring people in who have specialties or let people do their thing. Um, so, you know, that's that's all part of the growing up creative process. Now, how did the touring change then? Because you had the hit and, and you had a following. But, of course, when you have a number one hit, you have quite a bigger following. And, and you probably, yeah. when you do your set list before you can mix it up, but you know you have to play, stay every night. You probably had to oh, yeah. close with it because us people be like, what we heard, I mean, how would you, where did you play it in the, when when it was number one and when you started touring after that? Where in your set list rotation would you play that song? That's funny, you know. It's funny because once I had written that song, it became a song that everybody wanted to hear even before it was on Reality Bites. So it was a surprise that it did so well, but it was also, it, I, I also sort of struck my invisible beard thinking, huh, interesting, like people really wanted to hear that song at my shows. I remember Tatum O'Neill always wanted to hear that song when she came to my shows. And so I used to play it just somewhere in the set. I, I'm always very aware of 
my set lists because as somebody who went to a lot of concerts growing up, I like to feel that the set is peppered with the songs that feel more familiar. <clears throat> you know, if you go see a band, a local band a lot, there's certain songs you love. So you want to pepper the set with those songs so people feel like they're engaged. If there's a cover song you do, you want to put that in a strategic place. You don't want to play a bunch of slow songs in a row. You want to get their attention at the beginning, maybe with a more dramatic or faster song. Um, so I had a whole thing about the pace of the songs. And it's funny because two things happened. One was I remember the drummer in my band, John, who I'm still good friends with. Um, he, you know, we played at CBGB's after the song was on the radio. And he's like, oh, we're going to play that song. I'm like, of course, we always play that song. Why would we not play it now that it's popular when we always used to play it? Um, and people drove in from New Jersey to hear it. Like, come on, we, we have to play the song, of course. We'd be selling, you know, it would be so tacky to not play the song. But I'm, a, you know, I'm an audience member, so uh, yes, we had new songs, and yes, we had other songs, but of course we had to play the song. But once we started, once the song got really popular, not only were we playing regular concerts, <clears throat> but they were also sort of promotional for the song and the record, and for us, it wasn't just your average show. And often we were playing radio festivals because it was around the summertime and there's a lot of radio festivals. And we realized that if we played the song too early in the set, I remember playing to a huge packed crowd somewhere and we played the song Stay towards the beginning of the set and then everybody left. Oh. They're like, oh, we heard the song, bye. <laughs> that's that's so <laughs> I was like, oh my God, are you kidding me? Like, and, and again, that was like the positives and negatives of being on the radio. Everybody's there to hear the song. But as a real musician, I'm like, wait, what? People used to sit quietly listening to us play like you could hear a pin drop they were wrapped you know every word and now they just want to hear the one song i'm like seriously guys so we started putting the song much later in the set even as an encore so that people had to wait to hear it you know well i would i would also think that it's one of those songs that people would probably sing as you're playing it i would mm -hmm. think as a musician that'd be sort of irritating you'd be like hey you know i mean like i'm a big springsteen fan he does a few songs where he has the people oh, yeah. sing but it's like i would be like wait a second I want to sing this. I mean, did you ever sit there on stage no, and go, I, I, I want to sing this? No, I mean, the, the, I, that happens every once in a while now when I'm when I'm playing and I'm playing in intimate theaters or clubs and people are pressed up against the stage and they're so excited. And and I'm, I recently played a show that, I think it was up in Canada, where the people were so nice and they knew every word and it was just, it's really actually very welcoming and, and very... Um, it makes you feel good as a musician to, because, because you know, having had songs on the radio and knowing there are some people who know you for one song, you know, it's fun when people know all the albums and every song that you play. But it was every once in a while during that set that the gal in the front row was singing so loud. A couple of people were singing so loud in the front row I couldn't hear myself, and I, I don't think it was, <laughs> I think it was hurting my performance actually because I couldn't quite hear myself. I but in that. those situations, it's amazing. Like, I remember playing in Madison Square Garden, and they had a stage set up right in the middle. It was during a radio festival, and I was just out there with my guitar, and everybody in the place was singing every word, and it was it was just amazing. It was bizarre. You know, it's a very unique situation to be in. Now, now i got to ask you about the glasses, because you're, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a lifetime glasses wearer. So, you know, oh, yeah. and you made, you made glass. I mean, it used to be, I mean, I'm, I'm 52. It used to be women didn't really wear glasses. And you go, well, why didn't you wear glasses? Right. And they go, oh, I, don't, I don't look. I mean, I've always thought women look great in glasses. I don't know why. I just always been. Did you always wear glasses or did you go through a contact phase or did you just say, this is my, this is me. I'm wearing these glasses. Yeah, you know, um, I did go through a contact phase in high school. Well, I started wearing them, I think it was seventh or eighth grade. Um, one of my best, best friends, uh, one of my best friends, we were friends, our moms were friends when they were pregnant with us. That's how old of friends we were. We were born in the same hospital a month apart. My friend has worn glasses for way long, longer than I have. And so I always thought they were really cool. It was like, wow, she has glasses and she's getting her ears pierced. I can't wait till I get to wear glasses. And then I eventually, I needed glasses. And I did, she also started wearing contacts. And so I also wanted to wear contacts. Um, you know, it's convenient and you don't always get the best glasses selection. And I'm also, a, I was a dancer growing up, so sometimes it's inconvenient to wear glasses. Um, so I tried wearing contacts off and on through high school, but I always had very original, interesting glasses. It was the 80s, and I was always looking for something interesting. Um, but I was, I'm allergic to, to contacts. I got like little blisters in my eyelids. That sounds gross. But my eyes were dry, and so I couldn't really wear contacts regularly. 
I mean, you can kind of see, unfortunately, I think you can see better with contacts than you can with glasses, but my eyes just, they don't tolerate contacts well. I mean, I, I, every once in a while I get new contacts now because I do some acting and sometimes I don't, I don't wear my glasses in for auditions if I'm not going to play myself. Um, so I, I want to have contacts or when I go with my husband to a, uh, like a, an IMAX movie 3d where you have got the uh, goggles on they're, they're, they're hard to wear over glasses oh yeah I know but, so yeah I, I always had a positive association with glasses and I always thought it was an interesting way to express yourself and a lot of the musicians I listened to like D- David Bowie um, Elton John was famous for his glasses uh, you know I, I I don't know I just I think there's a practical side of me that that's just what I have to do and that's what I do and and then and, and, I, and then it was funny because people used to ask me a lot about my glasses when I first started out after stay, you know, after being in the public eye. And then that would frustrate me, too, because not only was I defending myself as a musician, I was like, can we talk about music instead of talking about my glasses? <laughs> but then I realized, you know, as time went on, like I said, oh, hello? Yeah. There were, there were so many musicians that I loved for their style, but I also totally at this same time I was able to recognize that I loved their music you know I loved the police and they had all that bright blonde hair especially at the beginning but I liked their music or I loved that jacket Sting was wearing or I I loved Elton John's crazy outfits but I loved his songs so you know they can they can exist coexist now you you started a a glasses company right yeah I did Um, again you know it took years to finally realize you know what I'm going to embrace my love of glasses it's, it's sort of a hobby for me as well as something that I need. I love, you know, just like I used to love going to a, re- a music store and finding a cool-looking guitar. I love glasses and cool glasses and interesting materials. And um, mostly I'm, I'm into glasses that, with interesting materials but that are flattering on my face. And a lot of other people always say, oh, my God, I'm wearing Lisa Loeb glasses. And I look at them, and sometimes they are. Sometimes they're better than my glasses. Sometimes they're not really my glasses. And I realized, you know what, people should, I want to do what I can to, to develop a line of glasses that are really flattering for a lot of different faces, that have that kind of heavy, slightly alternative, cool look, but they're, they're flattering. They're not ugly alternative. They're, they're just, they're interesting, but they're, they focus on a, a person's face, not on their glasses on their face, you know? And, um, and pe- so many people tell me that they wear their glasses because I wear glasses and their daughter wears glasses because, you know, she didn't feel bad wearing her glasses because she saw me wearing my glasses. And, you know, it's amazing to be a role model. And I wanted to embrace that and embrace my love of glasses and start um, a line of glasses, which is called Lisa Loeb Eyewear. You, you get a lot of stuff going. Now, how did you get into the uh, children's music? I had an opportunity early on about 10 years ago, 12 years ago. Um, from Barnes and Noble, it was sort of when the music industry had really started changing, and we were looking for alternative ways to put records out other than major labels. And the idea of getting a record into a store um, by doing a record exclusively with a store was a, a really interesting um, idea. So when Barnes and Noble asked me to do something different from my regular records, I um, I jumped at the chance. And I there was certain music that I always loved and entertainment that I loved growing up from the 70s. Um, I, I love that I get to talk about it because it's something that I love so much. But like the Muppets or Old Sesame Street from the 70s or Steve Martin, Donnie and Marie, Carol Burnett, um, you know, Cosby before he went down the the, the bad behavior drain. Um, you know, there was this whole set of comedy that had a lot of heart that was very clever. It was entertainment for... The whole family, but it had a, a grown-up sensibility, but but still the silliness and a fun side and, and heart and storytelling. And I always wanted to do something like that. And for me, kids' music was one area to do it. There were there were a couple of kids' records I loved, especially growing up, like "Free to Be You and Me," and um, Carol King's record. It's funny I knew her kids' record better than her grown-up <laughs> music, but her record called um, that, where she did all of Maurice Syndex, um words to her music she she made a record and um called really rosy and I, I always wanted to do something like that i thought that'd be a really fun thing to do my friend elizabeth mitchell from college had been making kids records so i asked her if she would help me out with it and she produced it and we put it out as a duo 
and it was my first kids record. And from there, I really ended up just continuing, but getting deeper into that initial um, inspiration, that, that kind of free to be you and me feeling. I did a summer camp record called Camp Lisa. It's a lot of my favorite summer camp songs. I love summer camp. Um, and again, it was like very silly, but very earnest and heartfelt production. The production on it is just like a grown up record. Um, I even have Lee Sklar, who's a very famous bass player. He plays on it. And Jay Bellarose, who's a, an amazing drummer. Um, you know, we made these, made that record and that led to doing two illustrated kids books. And I've just really enjoyed that outlet for making music. It's, it's influenced my grown up music. Um, I find that I'm more interested in telling different kinds of stories. Uh, I think also getting further and further away from having hit songs on the radio, you feel you start to feel more freedom. And the more concerts I play, the more I realize what really connects with people and what I enjoy doing. And there's somewhere in there, the, the kids' music is even fun to play at, at grown-up shows. It's just it's fun to take a break from love songs and sing a song about pancakes, right. something with clever words, you know? <laughs> I think grown-ups enjoy that as well. They don't want to hear the same thing over and over again. Now, do you play ever, ever play concerts for kids? Mm-hmm. And what's I that do. Like? I play Oh, go ahead. No, what's that like? It must be very cool just because just there's so much unbridled energy in a room, probably. Well, it started off being a little disconcerting because as a grown-up person who plays grown-up concerts, people usually listen very quietly and they pay attention and they listen. So when I first started playing kids' concerts, it was before I had kids and it was just a little crazy and a little bit mayhem. And they were songs that I hadn't been playing it for as long as I have my grown-up songs. You know, I've been doing that for 20 years. But to play kids' music, it wasn't my thing exactly. And it was a little tough but since then it's actually become really really fun it feels a little bit like surfing and people throwing stuff at you not that they literally are but the energy changes so quickly in the room and the songs are very short and but it's fun it's almost like doing a variety show kids come up and sing on stage with me i play requests sometimes i play grown-up songs that some of the grown-ups want to hear i ask kids for their favorite songs it's it's um it's actually been really fun it's, it's fun to to connect with them you know, it, it has a much less serious uh, feeling than some of my grown-up shows. Although my grown-up shows are pretty silly, too, so I don't know. It, it's just a whole different world. Everything's shorter. The songs are shorter. The set is shorter. Attention spans are shorter. <laughs> um, but I feel a real sense of accomplishment when I have connected with a huge group of kids and their parents. And we've had some singing, and I just feel like that there's just a, an amazing sense of connection, which... You know, not to sound cliche, but we lose a lot of that with the phones and the internet. Um, so when you actually have uh, experiences with humans um, and humans of all ages, it, it's it's a really nice feeling. I like it. Well, you seem like you have that good bridge with the kids, and you also you started you have your own foundation, right? Mm-hmm. And what, tell tell my listeners yeah. about that. That's um, when I when I made the Camp Lisa record. One of the reasons to make it was because I love summer camp music, and again, summer camp is the pinnacle of silly of serious, of arms around each other crying, but also singing songs about gross out stuff. Um, so I, I wanted to share that experience. And, and when I really started thinking about it, it wasn't just the music, it's the whole experience of summer camp. And I wanted to share that with, with people and with kids. And I found an organization in New York called Scope, who helps find kids who are underprivileged, who wouldn't typically get to go to summer camp and have that experience. And um, not only that, but they go even in further. They, they have summer camps they work with, which really help instill great values and leadership and being part of a community, you know, all under the auspices of just being at summer camp. So I really wanted to, to send kids there to these different summer camps. So I started the Camp Lisa Foundation. All the proceeds from my camp record, my Camp Lisa record, go to send kids to summer camp. Um, I have a coffee brand called The Wake Up blend through coffee fool which is a website coffee fool um they've done a blend of coffee beans for me and all the sales of that coffee sends kids to camp and people can just donate directly to send kids to camp i'd love to do more with that i have to actually figure out how to do more with my summer camp foundation because i don't have my own camp but i just think it's so great to plug into these uh camps that give kids an experience of a lifetime that really change their whole life and you do remember camp. I remember in South Jersey, the camp was, uh, well, we, it was Mount Misery. 
was one of the kids, and there is, and I was like, I don't know that someone gave it that nickname, but and you would go and you would take the bus, and we would take the bus down there, and then you would meet kids who, you know, I was from, I'm from Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Well, I would meet kids from different areas, so it, it would be, it'd be just like you would. in Cherry Hill was, in all honesty, back then was just very, very, very white, and so you could, yeah. you could meet kids from Willingboro, which was more, you know which was more African-Americans and you got to meet all different kinds of kids. And, and it was, it, it was a great time. Even though I didn't go, I went only for a few years. It is, it's a, it's a valuable learning experience. Yeah, it is. Cause it, you know, we spend a lot of time. I, my family's very school oriented and school's always a, a very big value doing well in school, doing your homework, but even it's, it's kind of a grind, you know, like we even, I think my, I was talking to my mom about this. I think a lot of the, the grind element was brought on by ourselves just as kids, my family, we all had high expectations of ourselves, and then the school expected a lot. And so to reach those expectations, it was really intense. So to be at summer camp where the intensity comes from spending time with people, you know, like trying things that you're a little scared to do, maybe jump in a lake or water ski or, you know, get up on stage for the first time, that where, where there's a little more space around it and, um, and, and more freedom and less sort of feeling like the grown-ups are there all the time. I, I think that's just such an amazing experience. It really makes, it, it helps kids with their self-confidence and uh, it just has much more of an impact sometimes than learning calculus, you know? Right. Now you also, you wrote a play about camp, right? Yeah, well I um, I wrote, I collaborated on the music with my friends L- Michelle Lewis and Dan Petty, who are my music collaborators on a lot of my kids' music, um, at least at that time. And they they, we wrote the music, and then Koozie Cram and Peter Hirsch, who are award-winning grown-up and kids writers, um, wrote the book. And it opened in Miami, and then it opened in New York City. And we're looking to, we really want to get it on the road. It's, it is a classic story of a, of a girl who goes to camp and a couple of other kids who go to camp for the first time and their experience and their rivalry with the, the fancy camp across the lake. But... It's funny. We we went to a number of the performances in New York when they were when they were doing that at the, the Atlantic Theater, um, a couple I think last spring, and the the parents who were there were you know were tearing up and the kids were really engaged. And again, it was one of those things where we really hit the nail on the head as far as creating entertainment that is quality that feels really top notch. It's not for kids, you know. It's for people. It's for families. Um, and and I, we, I'd love to send it on the road and see different different um, theater companies perform it to bring out the different aspects of the play. That'd be great. Now now, are you still touring a lot? I know you're going to be in. Uh, yeah. You're going to be in the Philadelphia area on Saturday, Saturday over out there in uh, Haverford. Yes. Havertown, actually. Ha- oh, is it Havertown? I keep saying Haverford too. It's a Haverford, Haverford Musical Town? Festival, and it's Havertown, Pennsylvania. It's it's okay. it's well, all. There you go. That's why I, it's confusing. I know the area. <laughs> so yeah, I do tour a lot. Um, it's funny, I played a show, a different show outside of Philly uh, towards the beginning of the summer, and it was more of a grown-up family show, but so many kids ended up climbing on stage that I did almost like a pop-up kids show in the middle of <laughs> my grown-up show. All of a sudden, we did like a 40-minute kids set that was really fun, and then the kids had to get off the stage because it was a hazard, and, uh, and then I continued on as it got darker at night. I continued on with my grown-up songs. So, yeah, I do tour mostly more weekends than weekdays because I've got two young kids in school, um, and I've got a bunch of other projects going on. But, you know, I'm, I'm just like a lot of other working parents. I'm always trying to figure out how to spend the most time with my family and do my work so that it's satisfying to me and I'm doing a good job at it but not taking away from the family. Um but being able to support the family. And it, it's funny, too, because now that I'm, I, I should be spending more time at home, I actually really enjoy I really enjoy playing concerts. Again, it's, it's something that it is almost like being at camp. There's a lot of laughs and a lot of, you know, uh, serious moments and connecting with people. It's, it's, it's a pretty great job. Now, what are some of the other projects you're working on? Um, I have a new record coming out in the fall called Feel What You Feel. Um, it's coming out in October. Pre-release is this weekend, actually, okay. and um, I'm really excited about it. it. It's I think it's the first record that really like it's for kids, but it's sort of not for kids if you listen to it. <laughs> like you got to check it out. I, I do some a couple of um, duets with 
with Craig Robinson from the TV show The Office right. and and Mr. Robot and a bunch of other stuff. Um, Craig and I have always wanted to, to perform together and to sing together. Every time we meet each other, we start singing to each other. It's very funny. <laughs> and finally, we were working on a song called Feel What You Feel, which is a disco funk jam. And um, and and I was thinking, gosh, this sounds good, but it, it sounds like it's a companion piece to another song. What would make the perfect companion piece to Feel What You Feel? And then I realized I'm always talking about Free To Be You And Me. And there's this great song that Rosie Greer sings called It's All Right To Cry. It's All Right To Cry. I thought, oh, my God, Craig and I have to do that song as a duet. And so Craig came and he, we did a duet of that song. And then he also sings the disco funk jam with me, which is just like a big party. And um, anyway, this record's coming out, uh, the pre-releases this weekend on Amazon exclusively which is where I put my Nursery Rhymes record out on. But this is something I think that grown-ups as well as kids will really want to hear, um, especially if you're sentimental at all about the 70s and the 80s. It's definitely for you. So that, that record's coming out um, this weekend, the pre-release, and officially in, in October. And then also I've just been making uh, music for TV shows for kids, doing a lot of voiceover work, touring, and a couple other things. Now, will you play any of those new songs in the in Havertown this weekend? I should. You know, I should probably get it together to try to play a couple of those songs. I need to. I need to relearn them. I wrote way too many lyrics for a lot of the songs, but I should. That 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 should be a goal of mine to work on because I, I I should I sort of have them in my head. We've been recording and mixing and mastering for a while, so uh, we're we're just about to make some videos for the songs as well. So I should I should play a couple of the songs. And you can hear for yourself that they're not just for kids. See, that's good because you know it's like well, you know, we, we you talk about that, and you know, look like when the Flintstones came out, that was for adults, but kids watched it. We all watched it as kids. Yeah, you know, because it was you sat there, and for the kids, we watched the cartoon content because cartoons were you know different back then. I mean, you used the Bugs Bunny and stuff like that, but it had adult content, and the kids, and it's great because like something like you're doing, kids and their parents can listen together. You know, it's not like, yeah. it's like, you know, it's not like sitting there going, oh, I don't want to listen to mom's music or, oh, I don't want to listen yeah. to my kid's music. It's, you're hitting both markets and that's a brilliant idea. Right. I mean, and you don't get into, my, my daughter who's six and a half has really gotten into a lot of the pop music. So I've been listening to Katy Perry and, you know, whatever's really popular on the radio, um, which I hadn't done. I, I've always been sort of an alternative kid. So to hear these like majorly pop songs, which it's pretty amazing, the production quality of these things. But what we're making, and I'm making with my collaborators, is it's not that. It gives you more of the feeling of, I'd like to teach the world to sing. And I think for some grown-ups, too, I think it's important because it, it brings you down to a human level of energy, which is this deep level. When you hear songs, there's a song on the record um, called I Was Here. And it really is respecting your life on this earth, the small things, the things that make, and, and when you listen to the song, it'll make you start thinking about your childhood or, or you know, maybe a little older, but details that were important to you in your life. And I think it's important to have that kind of introspection, you know, whether it's fun or quiet, have some kind of introspection. And I think these songs on my new record bring that out of, of the listener. Well, that's awesome. So that, that drops uh, uh, pre-release pre this weekend. Now, how can people follow you, get in touch with you? Give all your Instagram or your Twitter. Give that to the listeners. My Instagram is Lisa Loeb, L-I-S-A-L-O-E-B. My Twitter is Lisa Loeb. <laughs> My Facebook is official Lisa Loeb. Um, it's very, very easy. And Pinterest, Lisa Loeb. So you can you can check it all out. And we are I'm pretty active on there. Um Again, always trying to find the balance between letting people get some information and seeing what I see through my eyes, but at the same time, me having time to have a life <laughs> and right. not sit on my phone all the time. Well, I, but I, I, yeah, it's really cool. You should check it out. I will. And I, I, I like your website, lisaloeb.com. And uh, I, I want to thank you for coming on. This was fun. I'm glad I'm glad we got to, to get this uh, interview in. Yeah, me too. Lots of memories and lots of new things happening. So people, follow Lisa. Follow me on Twitter, at CooperTalk. That's at CooperTalk. Go to my website, CooperTalk.net. I think I have 550 episodes up there. You can email wow. me, Cooper, at CooperTalk.net. And on my other website, remember when I had my health problem, go to StopTheSalt.com. It's 120 low-sodium recipes. It's cooking for one. It's easy. There's no pictures to intimidate you. And there's no long list of ingredients. Like if you don't have cumin, don't worry. There's no there's no recipes with cumin. You can get it at Barnes and Noble, you, on dot com. You can get it at Amazon.com. But if you go to StopTheSalt.com, 
I make more money and I'll sign it. So do that. Follow me on Twitter, uh, Instagram, Cooper Talk One, Words with Friend, Cooper Talk One. And also check out my new sponsor, uh, Blowfish for Hangovers. Go to fourhangovers.com and type in the word Cooper, C O O P E R, and you get 20% off. So yeah, so keep listening. Go, go to Amazon, pre order Lisa's new album. Go buy her old albums, buy her books, buy everything you see by Lisa Loeb on Amazon, okay? Because it'll make you happy. So anyway, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I will talk to you guys next week. All right.